Welcome to the Being Fearless Podcast. In this podcast, we work on facing our fears so we can live our best lives. There's always going to be a voice inside you saying you can't. I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. I'm your host, Jackie Robbins. I'm a confidence coach, an ulcerative colitis warrior, dog mom, and a fitness enthusiast with a cupcake problem. It's okay to be scared. Do it anyway. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I hope you guys are doing well out there. Six weeks to Christmas, but who's counting? (laughs) Um, Anyway, we have a really amazing guest today. Today, I am sitting down with Ben Weiss, and he has some seriously amazing stories. Um, He was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and his journey was a little messed up. (laughs) There was some... um, There was some misdiagnosis. There was a lot going on. I believe I called him beautifully complicated. And you know what? You really learn how strong you are in the complicated, fucked up situations of life. And it was such a great conversation sitting with him. The more I sit down with people, you know, who are battling ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, I truly just see how strong things like this just make us. And Ben is the epitome of that. So hope you guys like this conversation. Oh, and before I forget, in case you want to do something amazing today, I am currently $74 away from my fundraising goal. We have an event, a virtual event for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation on December 5th. It's a Saturday. It's like a house party where we're going to do like some exercising and stuff, um, but we're trying to raise money for the foundations. And if you could find it in your heart to help a girl out, I would appreciate it. The link will be in the show notes. And I really hope you love this conversation as much as I did. Hey, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jackie, for having me. I really appreciate it. I am so excited to have you You guys. He just told me everything he has going on in his life and trying to remote learn with his kids and everything is just hella crazy right now. And he still has time to sit down with me. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Both girls, I'm severely outnumbered in the house. It's not even funny. <laughs> well, my, my friends asked why I put so much work into the second bathroom downstairs a couple of years ago. That's why. <laughs> so you can hang out down there? So I have something myself because I'll know I'll need something myself oh at my, some point. Do they not bang the door down? Because a lot of my mom friends tell me that the bathroom is no longer a safe place. Like kids just walk mm-hmm. in. Uh, they, they, they do, although the one upstairs, which is sort of communal to the the rest of the house, um, has a lock on it from the inside. Okay. And now it has what's like a, a key on the outside. We don't have a key for it, but if you know what you're doing, you can use your nail and sort of open. So now, fortunately, the kids are upstairs and they don't know that trick yet. But eventually, <laughs> I'm sure they're smart enough to figure it out. They're so my wife the safety pins. So, so <laughs> that or, you know, uh, whatever they could find to sort of crack the door open. Um, they tried unsuccessfully um, in the past. Uh not just the bathroom, but like the bedroom too, and things oh like that. Oh my god, so going to the bathroom though is sacred. That's like oh, that's absolutely. total alone time. Especially I, for us. 
Yeah, exactly. Like I can't even imagine having somebody else in there. And I will say I have a very small bathroom and my dog likes to come in there. So I'll be trying to go to the bathroom. And as you know, everybody knows I can't go on my own. So like, it's really awkward to be there with like a poop straw and my dog just sitting there and she's judging me. Like she's got this look like, what are you doing right now? Like, it's so bad. And I always laugh because, you know, my girlfriends are like, oh my God, the kids just walk in. I'm like, why don't you have a lock on the door? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, the lock works for now. We'll see for if, now, we to, yeah. if, we, if we have to go install an eye hook from the inside too, so they can't get in very far, then, you know, we can always do that. It's, I support there's, that. I there's, support there's, that. Al- there's always ways around it. And I think, you know, it's just one of those things that, uh, I try and make sure I do my best work when they're not around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, all right. Well, we kicked it right off with bathroom stuff. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do around here. Now, Ben, you have Crohn's disease. Is that yes, correct? I do. Yes. So tell us, tell us a little bit about your journey and your diagnosis, all, yeah, all the things. Sure. So I'll be 44 in a couple of weeks. And I think the first hint that something was up was when I was 17. Okay. And I suddenly became pretty severely lactose intolerant. And, you know, it was one point eating ice cream fine, normal kid. Next thing you know, snap of the fingers, I'm popping, you know, lactate pills to deal with it and things of that nature. So that was kind of the norm into college. I went to Northeastern. So as you know, it's a five-year school and co-op is a major part of that. So for your listeners who don't know, it's a cooperative education program. So your first year, you're in classes only starting in your sophomore year. You're half the year in class, half the year working in your field of choice. So you graduate in five years with a degree and a resume. So it also allows people to sort of experiment and say, oh, I think I want to be, you know, a HR administrator and you do a cup and you're like, yeah, this is boring as crap. I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. <laughs> so it gives you a chance to figure that out while you're still getting paid and make somebody help pay for school. So, so summer of 1997, I was down in Newport Island for the summer working on, uh, as one of my cooperative education experiences. And it was something a bit of, of a bit of a dream. I, I was always involved in the, in, in a big fan of the world of sports and did a lot of different things. And I had an advisor as part of the co-op program who was willing to sort of, you know, get to know her students well, understand what really makes them tick and present outside the box ideas. And I went in to meet with her to talk about the jobs I would apply for over the summer. I'd, I'd worked at, you know, law firms and things like that and both HR functions and other things and things like that. And I was like, you know, just want to do something different, see if there's, Anyway, I was inspired by the movie Jerry Maguire when I saw that. I was I wanted <laughs> to be a, I, I wanted to be a sports agent. And, you know, I'm like, okay, so get some kind of experience in the sports world and consider law school and see what happens. And my advisor brought this opportunity to work for the city of Newport's recreation department. I'm like, okay, that's kind of neat. Spend the summer. She said, it's not just that. She said, there's a reason why I brought this to you. I said, okay. She said, really, working for the recreation department is kind of, if you think of it, almost like a, a shell corporation in a sense. It's like it's, 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 it's the way you're getting paid. She says, your job is to be the commissioner of an amateur baseball league. 
I said, excuse me. Ooh, that's fun. <laughs> I said, so you're saying at 20 years old, I get to be down there being a lead administrator for a six team amateur baseball league in one of the most beautiful places in the country in the summer. And they're going to pay me for this. She said, yes. I said, have you sent the resume yet? She said, it's going today. Don't worry about it. So I spent the summer in Newport and one thing that I should say that's that's important to this whole piece is I was never able to drink a drop of alcohol until I was 24 years old because when I was five, I actually came down with a seizure disorder oh. and I had seizures as a young kid from the time I was five. My last one was around 13 or 14. So I was on medication to control that. So as you could see, so we've got seizures and we've got lactose intolerance. So the best way I like to explain myself as this builds is I'm quite complicated when it comes to me <laughs> medically. Um, that summer in 97, I had a bit of agreement with my roommates because I lived in a house in Newport. There was 12 guys who lived in the house. There was, I think, five of us on the top floor and seven on the bottom floor. And of the 12 of us, 11 of us were affiliated with the baseball league. So you can imagine the shit show that that place was. Mm -hmm. So I said, listen, I said, I said to the guys upstairs, I said, look, I don't drink because I can't. But if one of you guys has a car that you would leave here, I will be your designated driver. All you got to do is feed me. They're like, <laughs> you'll, we can call you and you'll pick us up drunk in the middle of town and bring us back home. Oh and all my God. Do is buy you what food. if you're sleeping? I would kill them. Yeah, I mean, I kind of knew that it was, to some degree, it was a bit of a peril, but I wasn't getting paid a lot. Yeah. So I'm like, hey, if I can get these guys to, to, to help cover food. Some, some food, then I can actually bring some money home. So, you know, my parents made sure I had a plentiful supply of lactate pills because they knew I would just be doing whatever I was doing down there. And... I had a moment where it was like, okay, I either have to go back to school early or get involved in this other and get involved in this potential other opportunity for another event, which is a whole other story. Or I have to sit there and do my last day of handing out the championship trophy for the league. I said, I'm going back early. And then, so that was the middle of August of 1997. Get back to school, September. Everything seems to be going fine. Thanksgiving comes and I'm a mess. Massive abdominal pain, dropping weight. I literally was in the middle of a flare and didn't know what was going on because oh, I hadn't no. been diagnosed yet. So I went through a battery of tests. Mm, it's like being a lab rat. <laughs> Absolutely. With a doctor who you know, actually. Really? Because I listened to your journey. Um, Tell me it's Dr. Katz. It is Dr. Katz. Oh, Dr. Katz. He looks like the human version of underdog, doesn't he? Yes. And the thing was, the reason why I had Dr. Katz at almost age 20. I was going to say, wait, you're too old for him. I was 21 at that point, And when I had, but remember, I was in college and I was diagnosed. So I was 17 my first month at Northeastern. So I was a true freshman. Yeah. So I had not progressed to an adult PCP when I went into gotcha. college. I still had my pediatrician fill out my health forms. So when I was having issues right before Thanksgiving in 97, my mom called my doctor who was still my pediatrician and I was referred to Dr. Katz. Oh my God. So, that is hilarious. So I went to his office in Waltham and I went through this battery of tests, everything from, you know, 
sigmoids, endos. I mean, I think I had a colonoscopy early at that point. I went through the lactose breath test, which I'm like, this is fucking stupid. I know oh I'm intolerant. God, Why make me do hours, this? Three hours. Of three hours life, of gone. drinking like this for your listeners. It's like if you imagine high C. Yes. In like a six or an eight ounce glass, it's virtually pure lactose. So you're drinking this and every 30 minutes for three hours, you're breathing into this, mm-hmm. this thing. And it's some measurement off of there that they take. And the normal range was from like zero to 11. One of my readings was 52. And I said, asshole, I knew I wasn't tolerant. Why, Why am I going this? through this? So I went through all this stuff and this is, you know, November of 97. And it, it, so I ended up. I did end up in the hospital at December for a little bit after some of these tests and it ended up being uh, diagnosed at the time as ulcerative colitis. I'm like, okay. He says, Dr. Katz got it wrong. Well, wait. So, <laughs> so this was, this was, you know, December of 97 and he had me on a couple different medications. And then, so as I said, because, Northeastern was a five-year school. There was no real break. So I didn't have the summer off the following summer. I still had classes. So I went through. I still lived on campus once I recovered. after My parents live in Randolph, so and they still do. So I went back home with them, recovered, and then eventually went back to my on-campus apartment. And the, the benefit of the, the timing of things at Northeastern was then they were still in the quarter system. So that was 10 weeks. You had your finals, another 10 weeks, your finals. So you had three of those. You had fall, winter, and spring. Then summer was divided into two short five-week sessions if you were in school in the summer. So I get back onto campus in the fall. Mind you, I was a student equipment manager for the men's and women's ice hockey team my entire time in school. So I'm sitting there. I'm videotaping all their games. I've built strong relations. That's where my a lot of my core group of friends came from. My dad was in a fraternity in Northeastern because my parents met there years prior. And since I couldn't drink, I'm like, a fraternity is not my thing. I don't yeah. want to be you know, the guy who can't drink in a fraternity. So I didn't go that route. So I found, you know, people around, around, you know, the hockey team. And so, you know, the hockey season starts in earnest in October, but they start practice in September. So, I'm sitting there with, with, you know, my friends. I'm like, okay, I've got to get to the rink, set them up for practice, all this kind of stuff. And my senior year was that fall of 98 to that June of 99. I had three hospital stays in nine months in December, March, and June. Were you Literally. in Wellesley? The first time I was. There's a solid chance I was with you. <laughs> okay. So Your wait, timeline no. matches mine. Like, there's a chance yeah. we could have so been in the probably, same vicinity. We probably weren't. So, actually, yes, in that point, in 99, I was at Newton Wellesley. It wasn't until 2001 when I was at Tufts. Okay. Um, that's how it all. So, I had those three hospital stays. And during the one, I think it was in December, they did a Prometheus blood test. And a few other exams and the Prometheus test came back. It was like 98% Crohn's. So he started treating me for Crohn's at that point. Um, I had to leave the hospital that June to go to commencement at the TD garden. 
which was actually interesting. I think it was still the fleet center. Then I have a picture here in my office <laughs> with my grandparents and, and my parents and I, um, and my sister in front of there. And my mom had to go out and buy me new clothes. Cause I dropped so much weight oh. and it was, it was just sort of a bad thing. So, you know, after graduation, I moved home. Um, once I left the hospital, cause I went back to the hospital after commencement and then, oh, you know, God. a week or so later, uh, went home and then I started, you know, working that November and I was working for a company called Meditech doing software support. It was still DOS based software at the time. So, you know, it was what it was. <laughs> and as I went through things, I'm like, okay, this isn't bad. I'm, you know, I'm making okay money. It's my first job. I was there until January of 2001 when I, I through a friend I interviewed at, Bornwood Hospital and their director of HR was coming out of retirement and they chose me to be trained by him for a 12 month period to take over as the hospital's director of HR, you know, in what would have been January of 2002 was when I would have started that new tenure. So I go into Meditech to give my two weeks notice. They come back the next day. They say, okay, today is your last day. You have eight hours to contact your AD accounts that you support. They thought I was going to take some software secrets or something. DOS-based fucking software, Jackie. It's like... (laughs) They had a Windows option at that point, too. I was, like, working on the ones to try to get them to convert. And it's like... So I felt something in my gut that day that didn't necessarily... I mean, you know what it's like. When you feel that something bad is going on, you're like, okay, I'm just going to plow through. There was, like... And these were hospitals that, that that I was supporting the software with. So there was, like six or eight of them who I really wanted to talk to. And I built like these strong relationships with over the 18 months I'd supported them. So I talked to them. I know something's not well. I go home. I said to my mom, I said, I don't know, something's kind of weird. Maybe it's just the stress of today. I said, I'm going to call Bornwood and tell him, you know, I'm going to take the weekend that I can start on Monday because I left my other job early and let's just get going. So they get me in there. I'm there for like a week and a half. And then MLK Day comes, hospital, flare. So that was another major flare. I was, and that's, I went to Tufts at that point because that's where Dr. Katz was at the time. So hold on, just for one second, just so people can understand. There was nothing that you did that brought on this flare. Like you were taking your medication following the diet it just boom you got sick i am i am the dork of all dorks when it comes to (laughs) listening to doctors i Um, love it because i'm the opposite or i was the opposite i was like the rebel that ate french fries for lunch so see i I was the person who's who as when i first started when i first started really meeting people with the foundation in 97 and 98 i'd meet people at these social events and I had convinced myself that there were certain things that I could not eat and because they would make me feel like shit and I didn't yeah. want to feel like shit again. No. And yet they're doing what you said that, that, that you were doing being the rebel. And I'm like, listen, just don't bitch to me about it. Yeah. It's like, this is you, what works for like, me. <laughs> it's, it's not even that. It's like, if you know that this is going to make you feel like shit, <laughs> why are then, you doing it? <laughs> then, well, no, if you want to do it and you have to actually say, okay, yep, I, I'm feeding the need of something. Fine. Enjoy it. Just don't bitch to me about it because you know what's coming. (laughs) And, you know, so 
But the only thing that happened to me at that point was I, I go back to that last day at Meditech where they gave me the crazy the amount of time, the stress and it feeling something stress, that day. Yeah. It was totally the stress. So I'm sitting there and I'm back in the hospital, back with Dr. Katz. This is January of 2001. And it was my longest stay, you know, at that point in time, it was a little over three weeks. And they went through a lot of different things. They brought a surgeon in to talk to me to, to see about things now. Please tell me it wasn't Dr. Vernon. No, it was Dr. Okay. Hackesley, which was one reason I was not going to let that son of a bitch touch me. Okay. Um, if your name is Hack, I'm sorry, no. I'm not letting you touch me at all. No, thank um, you. <laughs> so I, I basically, because I knew enough, because at that point in time, so 2001, so I'm 24, I turned 25 later that year. I was educated enough to know and put my nose in some of the things about what goes on with these diseases. So I knew that surgery was not going to cure me. Yeah. You know, I know when you shared your story, there's that misnomer that, you know, with surgery, you see can be cured. But of course, there are other things that happen because of that. Mm -hmm. So I knew there was no chance of me being cured. So I said, okay, I want to try every drug we have first before we do that. Yeah. Because if it's not going to cure me, why am I not going to try other things? And it was during that hospital stay that things finally came to a head with Dr. Katz. So it was basically, I think, really two things. One, you know him well. He's not Mm -hmm. the type that takes confrontation from his patients. When you're a pediatric doctor, you expect to dictate things and people to listen to you and do what you say. You don't expect to have people who are old enough to run their own opinions and sort of fight back on things. And the other part was knowing that I was in at Tufts and that it was a teaching hospital, you know that they're going to have residents or whoever else do things. So they had me basically head down on this, this, you know, my feet up sort of in the air on like a 45 degree angle because some resident was going to put a central line in my chest and just didn't go well. Oh, Uh, So it was not really the best experience. Uh, my dad, who's not known for being patient in general, um, and I'm being very kind, um, <laughs> ripped Dr. Katz a new one. Oh, boy. Um, and basically said, you make sure a professional takes care of this right now. And then when we're done and he's recovered and he's out of here, Dr. Katz basically came in and talked to me and we basically agreed to mutually part ways and that yeah. hospital stay was over. He was going to have to do it anyway. I think he can only take people to like 21. Yeah. Um, I never confronted him. However, I threw many a tantrum on that man and he would say what always cracked me up about him is he was very even keeled because with the kids, you know that I'm not the only one throwing this temper tantrum. But when I no. tell you, like, I would throw myself on the floor, I would, like, scream, I would kick things. Yeah. And he'd just look at me and he'd be like, Miss Robbins, are you done? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and my mother would be, like, sitting in the chair mortified, yeah. like, oh, God, here we go again but, but, but every you know, was, single time. But you know what I yearned for was days when he wasn't on rotation, when... <laughs> When either Dr. Biller or Dr. Flores would be coming by. Oh, my God. I forgot all about them. (laughs) They were, like, the best. I do remember liking them, and I think I wanted to fire him once. They had such great bedside manner for me that 
they could be there. They could be that even keel, but they could have that conversation and make yep. you feel comfortable because look, whether you're eight, like you were when you were diagnosed or you're in your early twenties, like I was, you're still trying to think of what's going on. It's a bit yeah. of a different worry. You were worried about finishing school and graduation and whether you were going to go to college. I was like, am I ever going to date anyone ever? <laughs> you know, it's like I was socially awkward to begin with. And oh. here I am with this like chronic disease and with not knowing what's disease. going on. Yeah. So something that the foundation was fantastic from the moment I was first diagnosed early on. I got to know then the director, Julie Perry, very well. And Julie was basically at the other end of the phone whenever we had anything, any questions. So when I had the chance to in January 2001, this ties back to Newport now. Um, I had the chance to get back to the foundation for the first time. When I left Newport that time early, I had mentioned it was to get involved in another event. That baseball field in Newport was across the street from a $300 a night Marriott hotel. And I'm trying to sell tickets to a, a, a college baseball game for a dollar a piece. <laughs> and I couldn't get people coming out of the hotel spending 300 bucks a night to spend a dollar to watch college kids play ball for a while. You probably could have dropped 20 bucks, had two tickets and plenty of food for the nine innings and been totally fine. And you would have been, you know, had no issues. So I reached out to, a Boston Herald sports writer I was a fan of to try to get some publicity. He, after many phone calls back and forth, because this is, of course, 1997. Email's There's no not email. <laughs> email was like you had your .edu email address and you had to access it at school. You yes. were not accessing it anywhere else. So it was many phone calls back and forth. And, you know, he finally said, okay, I'll include a player from your league in this article and do my amateur baseball in the summer. After the article ran, and later in the summer, he says, hey, I got this charity game I put together. I'm, I'm going to invite this this guy to play in it. So my choice was I go to the charity baseball game or I stay back in Newport. Well, I went to the charity baseball game. And then I got involved in the charity baseball game. So in April of 98, I'm added to the board of directors of this charity baseball game while still in college. So in January of 2001, when I'm in the hospital – I had to, I had them bring in a telephone that had a speakerphone on it because we were having our, our meeting of the board to decide who the charity was going to be. I said, fellas, I said, I'm, guys I'm and gals, tell you. Yeah. I said, I said, I'm telling you who the charity is going to be. And I'm going to win this one. And so we had the, the foundation be the, be the charitable beneficiary that summer. Oh, that's and, cool. and I think it was somewhere in the 30 or $35,000 range that was raised. Oh my God. That's and, amazing. Now that's 2001 and that was fantastic. And then I want to say, and also during that hospital stay in 2001 was when I got my first dose of Remicade. Mm-hmm. Jackie, I'm still on Remicade today. Really? That's what works because for you. I'm in remission today because I'm still, I'm still on Remicade and it's working. It's, it has literally been since 2001. I've been taking Remicade and it so has you've been, been in remission that long. Since about really probably 2002 or 2003, if you really wow. look at it. Wow, that, like, that is absolutely amazing. And you're, are you yeah. still not a rule breaker? Are you still like... I am um, a little bit more lax when it okay. comes to certain things. And I'll get to that. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the thing is that... So I, I started Remicade in 2001. 
I left Dr. Katz and I started and I, I left the hospital and I had interviews set up with three different doctors. And, you know, I took my mom with me because I wanted to make sure I had another set of ears of someone who was listening to everything they were saying. First doctor I see within a couple days of discharge of the hospital is Dr. Peter Banks over the Brigham. Okay. And I left and I said, Ma, I said, he's hired. She said, listen, I know you like him. We'll go to the other couple and we'll see. I was Dr. Banks' patient a week later. And, you know, sometimes you just know that something is the right thing. As much as our guts are fucked up, (laughs) we have to trust our gut a lot with things like that. Yeah. And I was his patient until about six years ago when he basically was uh, taking his healthy and stable patients and handing them off to protégés of his. And his wife had passed um, due to uh, Alzheimer's. And he had grandkids in two different states, not Massachusetts. So he was cutting his practice back to, to spend time with them. Um, but I thank him for everything because he was a large reason as to why I went from the first couple of doses of Remicade, the first dose of Remicade in the hospital with Dr. Katz, to suddenly being able to navigate that first year with the medication and balance things off. And sometime between 2002 and 2003, I think he basically said, you know, you're – you're, you're doing well. It was go, seeing him every three months, which got stretched to like every six. And for the longest time, you know, things were there. So in, in 2000 and by 2003, I had weaned myself off of all the seizure medication. Oh, my, neurolo- my neurologist basically said, listen, the last time you had a seizure was 1990. He said, the research now shows that you have just as great of a chance of having a seizure on the medication as you do off. So let's not over-medicate you. Let's get you off of this stuff. So I was off the medication and was like, okay, so, you know, you start with wine and you start to work your way into mm-hmm. things slowly. And then at a certain point, so this is when dating became very difficult um, I had a lot of bad and awkward first dates. I had a, a serious girlfriend for a while, about 14 months between, you know, late 2002 and early 2004. Um, she had her own personal issues, which it seems like she's kind of gotten past, I think. Um, <laughs> I'm being honest. I don't know a hundred percent. I mean, it was in the world of Facebook. I only connected with her in the last couple of months. Um, I'd been connected to her dad awkwardly, (laughs) but, but in the Jewish community, things are very small and very tiny. Yeah. And I noticed more and more her commenting on a lot of my friends posts. I'm like, wow, everyone knows each other. I may as it may, it's going to look awfully awkward if I'm not connected in some way, shape or form. So fine. So the issues that she had when, when she was, um, she had body image issues and she was bulimic. Mm-hmm. Um, I caught her. We were where at one point I caught her forcing herself to dinner. It's just oh. never a good thing. No, I think, I think a lot of the reason was brought on by, by her parents in some degree, but all that aside, I left her because I said, if, if you can't love yourself, then you can't love me. 
But the biggest issue I had in the biggest red flag in the world was I had said I knew she didn't like driving in Boston. I said, okay. Does anybody? (laughs) There are people who can tolerate it. Yeah. And if you've driven in the city enough and know enough of your way to get around and have enough of the mass hole in you, (laughs) you can can navigate yourself through okay and survive. So I asked her one day, I said, if I got sick and had to go to the hospital, would you drive me there? Now, innocent enough question, right? Yeah. You think you'd expect the the answer to come? Of course. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. No. I got, gee, I'd call you a cab. Because she didn't like that was the final sort of nail in the coffin. Yeah. Okay. You know, I I have to be selective with things, and if you're having enough trouble loving yourself, and then if the person who you claim to actually love is going through medical issues, and you're not going to put your ass in a car and drive them to the hospital, then you're not the person that I've got to be with at this point in my life. And then. You know, my friends are like, oh, you finally saw it. I'm like, people not going to tell me. It's Hindsight, like, 2020. <laughs> so so then I continued to go on, on, a, on, a, on a string of bad first dates after that. Oh, no. I, well, I had this favorite Italian restaurant of mine that I knew the waiters at. It was in downtown Boston. You know, my, my parents used to take me there when we would go out when I was at Northeastern. They went there when they were younger. And I'm like, okay, this is good. It's 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 familiar territory. I know what I can order and be comfortable. <laughs> you know, and I and I know what I can do and what I can say. Yep. And you know, I was still sort of hesitant and I'm sitting there, nice conversation, and the girl across from me, I can't even remember her name right now because this was 15, 16 years ago. No, 17 years ago now. She's like, here, taste this. Like, I can't. I said, why? I said, I just, I can't. I said, I said, I, you know, I, I told you about the lactose intolerance. So I said, but there's no dairy in here. I should try this. I said, I can't. She said, why? I said, do you want to know why? She said, yeah. I said, are you sure you want to know why? She said, yeah. I said, okay. Just remember, when I tell you the story, you said you wanted to know why. <laughs> Spill the beans with it. And lo and behold, never saw her again. It's and, too much, I think it's too much for some people. I and, I generally, you know it about me before you meet me. Um, yeah. I'm always well, see, amazed at reactions, but like for me, I, I need you to just know that yeah. first. But but see, for me at that point in my life, it was like okay, I was still self conscious yes. about oh, things. Of course, I was I was healthy, but gotten out of a toxic relationship. Really, my first real relationship at that point. I mean, you know, you date people in college, but it's like that was the first thing that, you know, I felt really had a chance to be something. And, you know, you're trying to deal with the medical shit. And then it's like, okay, so I started just telling people in conversations early. And in my now wife, when we started talking, I told her early and she was like, okay, I'm going to Google this and find out what it's all about. You know, I told you she's in the That's medical awesome. field. So yeah. she's, a, however, the biggest challenge I have today is we've been married 14 years now. Oh my God. That's amazing. We got married in 2006 and she has never seen me sick. So oh, that's right. Cause you've been in remission for so long. She's so never had to she's see never it. She's never had to see it. 
So it's been, it's always tricky because she knows she can try to understand. Yeah. And, you know, I had this gap of time and you'll see I'm kind of squirrel brain, but too, but I'm thinking <laughs> back to where it has to go. So after that, the 2001 baseball game where I raised the 30 or 35,000 for the foundation, I think it was about a year or so later, maybe two years later, the executive director at the time who I knew well left the foundation. She went to work for the Ellie fund and ended up moving to Ohio where I think she still is. Um, she commented on something on LinkedIn for me the other day and I was like, Oh, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> um, so I had a period of time where I was not connected to the foundation. Yeah. I tried to, I tried to actually get a job at the foundation, but the executive director who was there at the time didn't really give me the time of day. I had a similar the, experience. Was years not ago. the was not yeah. the right person to do that. And I'm like, why do you not give a patient at least an interview? And why do you lead them around, beat them around the bush, and things like that? So, you know, go ahead, meet my wife. We date for a little while. We get engaged. We get married. You know, we adapt things. Mostly for me, it was still the lactose intolerance. It was a major problem. Um, I was still avoiding heavily fried foods. Yeah. Although. In 2005 is when Dr. Banks opened my diet up to anything I wanted. Really? He said, he said, Ben, you've been doing so well for so long. Let's he test said, the waters. He said, feel free to test the waters. He said, he said, you've been very disciplined with it. He said, try one new food at a time. And see you what know, happens. See what happens. Give yourself a couple of days. And within nine months, I put 40 pounds on. <laughs> okay. I was like, okay, I'm sorry, that is not funny, but your face was really funny when you I, said but, it. But you, but people have to realize, I sat there and I was eating foods I hadn't eaten. Yeah. And at that time, eight or nine years. What was the first thing? Like, what was the gateway food? Um. Wow. I mean, it was probably just You probably were like, I don't even remember. See, I remember mine was was buffalo wings. Yeah. See, for me, it was probably going to the Chinese restaurant we went to as a family and ordering things that were like, you know, things you used to order as a kid that were classically deep fried. Yeah. Because it was it was something that was there. I mean, between that and then ended up having like ribs and French fries, I was done. You know, I mean. My family never kept kosher, so it's like you sort of throw those rules out the window. <laughs> and, you know, so I put a bunch of weight on, and then I had to go through and I had to drop it because I got too heavy. Yeah. So after we got engaged, I joined Weight Watchers. I dropped all the weight before the wedding and was able to get to a point where I was okay. I was back down to my college weight of around 185, 187. I think after the honeymoon, I topped out at 192. I'm like, okay, I can put put on five or seven pounds and sit in that 190 range. Yeah. And what, what was unique about that was Dr. Banks is like, okay, this is the range I want you to stay in, in this 190 to 195. He said, you worked hard to get back down here. This is where you should be. That was both good and bad because that also created a new stress point. Yeah. Where yeah. if, if you're not in the five pound range, when you go to the appointment, you know, if you're creeping at things and you see the two in front of that number in the scale and that's like nightmarish. So, you know, I had an issue with weight for a long time where I was so focused 
on staying within where I had to be. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, I, I created other stressful situations. I learned enough techniques where I could manage the stress where it didn't affect the Crohn's. Yeah. But it definitely impacted other things. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, okay, so I started to see, um, I started to work with a personal trainer in 2009. And I'm like, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll get into working out again. And I'll have someone who, you know, joined with the YMCA. I said, okay, if I have an appointment, I, I can't be late for something there because I'm paying for it additional. Yes, when there's money and in the game. There's, <laughs> there's, there's money and accountability. It's like if someone's going to be texting me to say, hey, I'll see you at 7 a.m., right? I'll be okay, there. Okay, <laughs> I'll be there. And you have to have that 24-hour cancellation policy. So we, we go for a while, you know, from late 09 into, you know, the middle of 2010, and then we start talking about cardio stamina. And she's like, well, find a 5K. We'll do a couch to 5K program. <laughs> I, like I have it. no idea. So I got an email and I got a card from the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation talking about Team Challenge. This is and in 2009? This is in 2010. Okay. So in the summer of 2010, I get this postcard about Team Challenge. And I said to her, I said, I, I sent her... Um, a picture of it that I took because I was it was going to be over a week before I'd be back in the gym to see her, and I wanted to make sure. She's like, "Well, that's not quite what I was thinking, but it can't hurt if you go <laughs> if you go there half marathon. It can't hurt if you go there and listen." And my whole motivation for going was like, "Okay, well, I'm going to meet the new executive director and see if I can start to see who's there now because I was still burned from before." Yeah, you know. So I go there, and I, I tell my wife, "I said, look, it's." It's a one hour thing at, at the, the library in Lexington. I said, let me just go and listen. Maybe I'll meet some people and see what happens. So I go and I listen. And you know what these information meetings are like, Jackie. It's I've like, actually never been to one. Oh, see, no, I'm is... a blind signer upper. I see, don't. I just see, like sent an email and was like, I'm is, in. It is very rare for anyone who attends an information meeting to not jump in. Oh, I'm sure. They're, 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 they're designed in a oh, way, yeah. with, as with any charitable organization, where they literally pull at your heartstrings. Yes. And, you know, the uniqueness about Team Challenge is more than half the participants are actual patients, too. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. I'm listening to the people people talk. There's There was um, Allie Rosenfeld was there. She was, you know, the, the Team Challenge lead for the New England chapter at that time. Um. I'm missing his last name, but Craig was the executive director of, of the, of the chapter then who eventually went on to for team challenge national and then ended up leaving the, the organization to go work somewhere else. And I had a long conversation with Craig and I said, listen, I said, I had a really bad taste in my mouth from what happened before and trying to yeah. apply for a job. And he's like, look, he's, he's like, I'm going to apologize to you today on behalf of the organization. He said, if you want to sit there, and come out with us, come to a training, see what it's all about. You know, for your listeners, there's this period with this called recommitment. So you, you can there, drop out like within, let's say it's like, like three a, months. It's like the first month and a half. You can drop out at any given yeah. time. So you could sit there. There is this date where yeah. it's like, this is the point of no return. This is yeah. the gate. It's like, once you cross this date and you, you sign on the bottom line, yeah. 
you're not just doing it. You're responsible for the fundraising amount. Because mm-hmm. if you sit there and you drop out before recommitment, you could say, it's not for me. You're not responsible for anything. They keep whatever money you raised and that's it. Yeah. So, so Allie was there and Craig was there. And at that time, this is August of 2010. When I'm at this information meeting and I say, okay, I can get out of it. I commit to it. So I text my office and guess what I just did? <laughs> she said, you're insane. I said, well, you know, I have We're an doing out. this. <laughs> I, I said, look, I said, I have an out. I said, if it doesn't go well, yeah. I don't feel right physically. I could drop and I don't have anything holding me back. Where and was your race going to be? Was it Boston? No, it was going to be Las Vegas that December. Ooh, okay. So it was, it was the Las Vegas, um, you know, half marathon. It was, it was like December 4th or something like that of 2010. So training started in, you know, September. Mm-hmm. going through everything, meeting some amazing people. And, you know, it was the first time I really felt comfortable. Yeah. I, I'd never been, I'd never run any more than the mile during the high school physical fitness test. Oh God. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm going to start running for the first time. Now it's 2010. So, you know, at that point I'm, I turned 34 during my first season Never run more than a mile in my life and hadn't done anything in about 16 years. Um, aside from, you know, being on a treadmill to warm up at the gym or things like that, nothing of any real length and nothing in like woods or any kind of paths or never run a race ever. So, I'm, you know, so I have my mentor and, you know, we're, we're talking about things. We're going through the process. For me, it's very cathartic because I'm, I'm finally seeing there's this world of people that I never knew existed that I needed and didn't know I needed. Yeah. So I sat there and I suddenly had these people that we could have conversations like this. You become a member of team Brown. It's like, everything (laughs) is there. You know, the amount of convert. I mean, if if your listeners think that how you talk about poop is something, (laughs) they they should come to one training session and hear the free spirit. I'll just of the bring the microphone one of these times and just like it is, candidly do it. It is such an actual freeing thing. It is. And we don't care. Like it's over muffins and coffee and we're talking be, about be, pooping. Because you know what? Everyone has been there. Yeah. And if it's people who have not been there as patients, because I still have some really good friends today who I trained with in that first season who I've still run races with 10 years later. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, one that I'm thinking in particular, um, she was not a patient, but her son was. Yep. So she was running for her son. And she's still, to this day, like 12 races later in the book, so 13, yeah. still does it. So, you know, not only is it this community of people that, 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 that you know that you really needed, you can sit there, you're motivated by the emails coming in from the donations, and you're showing up on a Saturday morning, no matter how fucking cold it is in November and December, as you're getting ready to run this thing. I was just thing. talking yeah. about how my first yeah. one was 20 degrees and there was snow on the ground. Yeah. But so here's where it becomes a little more interesting in that first year, because like I said, I'm complicated. So Dr. Banks was glad that I was doing this, was very excited. He was a big supporter of the foundation. So this would be good for you to go ahead and do this. So during one of my checkouts, which are still every three months with him at that time, just to make sure that everything was good to go. He said, you're having a problem absorbing some calcium here. You know, your oh, bone. No. I was on prednisone for a couple of years in a row in 03 and 04. He said, you know, 
I was on additional calcium to help with the bone density because we know how it ravages your bones. Mm-hmm. And never mind the puffy face and things Ugh. like that. But I it have does, PTSD hearing the word yeah. prednisone. But, but it does so much to you that you cannot see, that people can't tell, that that's where it becomes complicated. So he's like, listen, I'm going to send you an endocrinologist. They're going to run a couple of tests just to see what's going on because he tried to increase my dose. I still wasn't absorbing as much. So the, the thyroid is in the neck and it sort of has a bit of a amoeba shape, but it's got sort of four points, sort of like an X sort of for a visual for the listeners. And be, be, behind the four corners are these small blueberry sized glands called parathyroid glands. Mm-hmm. And they actually help if they're, they're blueberry size and they're working good. If they're the size of a grape, then they're inflamed and they're not doing what they should be doing. I had one that was the size of a grape. So like, we're going to remove the one gland and that should go ahead and make sure that everything is okay. The absorption. He said, we'll schedule a surgery for after the race. Yeah. He said, you'll go through your training. The exercise will be good for you. You'll just have a few different things that you'll have to do. You'll have to do your pre-op before Thanksgiving because your race is early December. That They want to do the surgery before Christmas because doctors want to go on vacation too. Yep. For he's a like month. A, yeah. He's <laughs> like, it should be pretty straightforward. So I go in for the, um, the pre-op ultrasound of my neck. So they could sit there and make sure everything's going to do. They said, you know, has anyone ever talked to you about this little thing on your thyroid? I said, what thing are you seeing? Because no one's ever mentioned it before. So, well, there's this thing. We just want to biopsy it and see what it is. I said, okay, sure. So they biopsy it. And I said, okay. They said, we'll be in touch in a couple of days, the results. Said, okay, sure. So my endocrinologist calls back and says, you know, we want to biopsy that again. I said, why? He said, the results were inconclusive. I said, well, what makes you think going back a second time will get you conclusive results? He said, you know, Ben, when you go to a restaurant that you like a lot and you order the same thing all the time, you can tell when the head chef cooked it or the sous chef cooked it. I said, yeah. He said, well, we had the sous chef of, <laughs> of, of, of people guiding us to the ultrasound. He said, I've scheduled the next biopsy with the head of the radiology department who will take us through with the ultrasound so we can biopsy it perfectly right in the center and get what we need. I said, fine. If you're convinced that having this head of radiology do this will make a difference. Okay. Stick a needle in my neck one more time. It's like, oh, I, I, I'm like cringing over here. So we go back. This is right before Thanksgiving. They, and then my surgeon calls me a few days later. He says, well, Ben, we have three choices for you. And one of them really isn't a choice, but legally we have to tell you what it is, but we don't think it's, it's a viable option. The parathyroid gland's coming out anyway. He said, with your thyroid, he said, we can do nothing, which we legally have to tell you, but we don't believe is an option. Okay. Oh, mind you, my wife was pregnant at the time, and, and we're expected to have our first child in February of 2011. This is November of 2010. And the surgery is scheduled for December of 2000. And your race is December. <laughs> and the race is December. So this is like two weeks before the race. I'm having to go through this process to understand what's going to happen. And he, he's like, the second option is we take the half of the thyroid that has this thing on it. We take it out. We biopsy it further and examine it. If it's nothing, okay, maybe you have to take a little bit of a hormone because you only have half a thyroid left. If it's something we got to go back and take the second half of the thyroid out. Oh, my God. I said, so, 
okay, what's the third option? They said, we take the whole thyroid to take a, a hormone medication every day for the rest of your life. I said, okay, so let's just go back to that second option again for a second. If you do the one half and you take that in December, and then if you find out it's something, when do you have to go back for the second half? They said typically two months post-surgery. I said December. Jeff, so said, nope. you're going to have a one-month-old or was she no, – that's like – it, it would have been the month she was supposed to be delivered. I said, doc, oh, no. take the whole thing. Oh, my God. So I go to Vegas and I run the race. Oh, thank God. I was and really like on my edge no, of the seat with like, no. please tell so, me you got to run this race. The funny thing is that to this day, it's still my personal best for a half. Really? Yeah. I think I – it was before I got into the idea of wanting either a certain time or certain things. I you was, just did it. I just did it to enjoy it. I soaked everything in. It was 7 o'clock start in the morning in Las Vegas. You're running down the Vegas Strip. Yeah, you are. The That's thing. so cool. And it is just like you're sitting there taking it all in. You're seeing – like I saw Allie at mile 6 and then mile 10 – and, you know, I end up running with one of the coaches, you know, in like mile 12. And listen, I heard your, I, I listened to your, the, the one that you did just the other day, Wednesday, about owning your shit the other mm-hmm. day. And then I've, I'm halfway through your hundred days before. And the thing about your hundred days, I sat there and I listened to what you're talking about for a time. I'm like, I would kill for a time like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm lucky if my pace is between 12 and 12 and a half minutes. But you're and, doing it, and that's all that and, matters. And I, I mix in a share of walking. I, I joke. I don't have the, the stereotypical runner's body. So fine. So I sit there. So I go and I run this race. And, you know, I really didn't tell anyone except for Allie and, and Craig and a few others what was really going on because I didn't know much. I didn't want to make a big deal. I had talked to work. I was working for IBM at the time. And my manager knew I was having the surgery for the absorption thing. And I said, they found something, not sure what it is, but they're just going to, she said, listen, you take the time off. You need to recover. It's the end of the calendar year. Not a big deal. So like a week after the race, I go in for surgery. It's literally just, they were so packed. I basically slept in recovery that night because they couldn't get me a legitimate bed after the surgery was over. Um, And then of course, doctors go on vacation. So I went home. I didn't do anything for about two weeks. I go back and I see my surgeon in early to mid-January. And I said, so, Doc, what's going on? He said, well, the surgery was very successful. He said, you'll still continue to see, you know, your endocrinologist to follow on the absorption issues and make sure things are there. And because we took out your whole thyroid, he's going to manage the dosage of thyroid hormone that you, that you need. And he said, by the way, you've made a very wise decision. I said, what do you mean? Taking the whole thing out? He said it was thyroid cancer. Oh, my God. He said it was so early and so small that that's why they couldn't successfully biopsy it. He said, you don't need any further treatments. Wow. Talk about listening to your gut. He said that was caught so early that it is the kind of thing that had you not been caught because of the parathyroid thing – it eventually would have probably grown and expanded. And I would have realized something at some point. So I'm sitting there. I've run my first half marathon. I was so pleased with how I did. And I go in and I have surgery and then I come back out and I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to do more. It's like, I was, they said I was healthy. It's like, fine, I'm going to do more. 
And so we're now sitting here. It's October 1st of 2020. I'm 15 days away from my birthday and I've run a race a year for the last decade for the foundation. For the Oh my God, that's amazing. I, I've done eight halves and two full. So you must have been there the year I did it, right? Which race did you do? Because I didn't do every race during those years. Run to remember in 2019. I didn't do that one. Okay. Because, I was like, I so, didn't think so. Because no. I feel like so, I would have met you. Yeah. So I, I did in... I doubled up in 2016, so it threw my schedule off. So I yeah. did New I did New Orleans in 2016. That's when I, that's when I met Jordan and a bunch of other people. She's the best. And Her poop puns. I yeah, can't. <laughs> so after after New Orleans, which was in March that year, I think it was no, it was late February or early March. And I can see I have the. I have, a, I have a couple of glasses up here from some of the races. I the, am um, wicked impressed with your date remembrance. When I yeah, sit down so, and think of things, I'm like, I don't it, know, it, the 90s? It, 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 it says 2016. It doesn't necessarily say when. But <laughs> but the only reason I remember is because we had a reunion run in March. Yeah. And we went to, to Newton. It was just like a sort of mile, hey, everyone get back together. It was an excuse to eat, really. Yeah. I mean, we all know how that works. Yeah. And I was sitting next to Coach Mark in the restaurant in Newton, and Mark's become a good friend over the years. And I said, Mark, I got this email from Jenny. I said, they have numbers for the Chicago Marathon. I said, do you think I can do it? Mark's going to say yes. Are you kidding me? He's like the ultimate cheerleader. Yes, of course. So he said, of course you can do this. I said, it's in October. Can I do it this year? <laughs> because the fundraising minimum was just 1500 bucks. Yeah. Because it, it, it basically included your number. And that was about it. There was, it was a national team. So there was a very small little gathering. There was no big pasta party, no major speeches. Um, they didn't include any, any travel or hotel in there with it. When I first started, they included airfare. In right. I know I mean, it was. So I did, I did the Chicago marathon in 16, but I got hurt at mile 18 and had a, and had a walk the last, you know, but you finished the last six. Yes. But okay. here's the thing. And here's where my stubbornness comes in. So everyone's a finisher. You get your medal. Yay. All about that <laughs> stuff. Now, this is 2016, so I have both my girls at that point. Annabelle is five, and Rebecca had turned two a few months before the, the marathon. And, and it was also our 10-year anniversary, so my wife was patient enough to make a trip to Chicago, a little anniversary trip. We went a couple Aww. days early, had a nice meal, did some sightseeing, but it was there for my marathon. It was just – it was not – the romantic probably trip that she thought she would have ended up yeah. getting. So I got to make it up to her next year when it's 15 <laughs> years. Um, but I sat there and I, I didn't necessarily finish the race the way I wanted it. it. Didn't my training was good over the summer training sucked, but something wasn't right. And at the end of the race, they, they, they sent this thing in the mail, this booklet and in the booklet has the names of all the finishers. And what I realized was my name wasn't in there. Because to be an official of the record finisher, you have to finish in under six hours and 30 minutes. I finished in 658. Mm. So I was like, okay. Because I had to walk the last 10K of it, the last 6.2 miles. Because I had 
pulled my right IT band to a point by mile 20 where I couldn't, I couldn't run. I tried. I just couldn't. So I said to Mark, I said, listen, we're going back. Yeah, we have to do, we, I need to do over. <laughs> I said, I said, I, I need, I need, I need vengeance. I, I, I need to, need to go back and do this again. So I went back to Chicago again the next year and, you know, the fundraising end was up to like 1750 because they're trying to make some more money for the foundation. And I, this time I, I went and it was a business trip. I told Tammy, I said, Nope, you're not going to come. I'm going there for a reason. I'm running this race. I'm finishing so I can show the girls in that booklet. Look at what daddy did. You oh, know, that's come on. The whole they, well, you know, they were proud of you for finishing either way, but I understand. Maybe so. But to be able to say years later, see, yeah. look at this. So, I sat there, Mark and I strategized. We adjust the training schedule. We put a few more 20 mile runs in there to really extend it more. Oh, it was a bitch and a half, but it was, I still smile with pride when I see the Facebook memories pop up of some of those drastic training runs because they were, they were not fun. And you're training for a marathon on your own. There's no team environment. I was able to join some other sessions where people were training for other races, but this was not anything I was going to be able to do. So I sat there and, you know, I had a few really good friends who were on the national team who I'd met through all my time of all at the foundation. So the three of us bunked together in a hotel room. We were all there for the same reason. I actually had some business with my current job at that point to conduct while I was there in Chicago. And I go in there and I'm running the race and I'm feeling awesome. And I found out a couple of days beforehand that Mark was going to be there Yay. because his, his wife, Sharon had a conference starting that Monday. So Mark flew in for the race and I saw him at mile 23 and we ran for about a quarter mile together. And then I said, okay, I'll see you later. We'll grab dinner. So I had my, my phone going with the map, my run app and the way the end of the Chicago marathon works. And I learned this the hard way the first year. You get to like the 25 and a half mile mark and then you look and you see a turn and you see where it, you end up getting to the 20, the 25 and a half mile mark is this mm-hmm. upward hill and you get to the top of the hill and it's mile 26 and you take a left and you see the finish line 0.2 miles away. And the first year I was all thrown off by, I didn't know what was happening. The second year I'm like, I know this fucking hill is coming. I'm going to own this terrible. fucking hill. So, so I, I get up there, I get to the hill and I take that left turn and I fucking beeline it. What? <laughs> I ran as fast as I possibly could because I felt so good. And I've always been someone who saved a little bit of energy at the end because I've always wanted to finish strong because as you know, Jackie, there are photographers everywhere. Yes. And there are photographers smile. everywhere on the finish line. So you got to smile. <laughs> so I'm like, if I'm going to smile, I'm damn well going to be running and not right? walking. Right, I want to be so, <laughs> Energizer Bunny. <laughs> so I always say, and I actually yelled at someone to get out of the fucking way because I wasn't going to stop at all. And I ran through the finish line. I almost fell over. I stopped my app and I looked at it and I said, no fucking way. That can't be right. I looked at my time. I shit you not. I went from finishing in like I shaved 58 minutes off my time from one year to the next. I finished sub six hours when I did it that second year at like 558 and change. And 
the first per- the first thing I did when I tried to text Tammy to find out where she was, I then called Mark. And I said, sub fucking six, can you believe this? <laughs> and it was it was probably the highlight of my running career. That's awesome. Was sitting there and being like, okay, I went back with a vengeance because I was pissed at the way it ended. Yeah. I pushed myself through the training again. And, you know, running is funny because if you're never good at team sports, running's always something that you can do and you can sort of, it's just, you're, you're, you're competing with yourself. But no matter how good your training is, you can wake up and you can have the best day of your life. Yeah. Or you can have the worst day of your life. Just running. Never mind the, the, yeah. the extra stuff on the outside. So it really was a matter of two different years, literally almost 12 months apart to the date where my training was great both times. It was a little better the second time because we refined it. Yeah. But it was waking up and having a day. It's like I was thinking of, of doing another one as soon as I finished that. Oh, my God. No. I, 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 I got to say I didn't. Um <laughs> But the biggest thing that I missed out of that was I missed the family atmosphere. I missed the group trainings. I missed everything that went along with it. Yeah. And I'm like, I have to get back. I have to find a way. Um, And I ended up, I did go to Key West last January in January of 19. So what I did is I skipped the run to remember because I wanted to give my donors a good year off. Yeah. Between when I finished the Chicago marathon the second time and I started fundraising again. Yeah. Because I literally have been asking people year. I know. I feel like I'm fundraising all the time and I'm like, sometimes you just need to like take a hot second and get creative. So, so, so I skipped the, I skipped the run to remember because I had heard that there was going to be, you know, a new cool race coming. I know I did some, I did something else too before Key West. I forget what it was. I know there was another one in, in between there. There was another one that was done too. I forget what it was. Was it New No, it wasn't New Orleans the second time. It was something else. Was it else. Wine Country? I wanted to do Wine Country. I did, I, I did that in 12 and 13. I'm forgetting nice. another, another race in there between the second time of the Chicago Marathon. God, you've done so West. many races. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's been great. It's been a hard year because I miss my family. I know. Uh, I, I miss those people, but, you know, it's... um. It's one of those things that you just sit there you, when you find that that full atmosphere and know that you can sit there and have all the conversations and see how it is and you and know we'll I've, get to I've, do that again someday. Oh yeah, I mean I've I've had the chance to be a mentor over time and things like that and just whatever you can do to try and do things. But Team Challenge opened me up to other things because now I said at the top to you I think that I work for Salesforce now and Salesforce is. A massive organization, um, about fifty-five thousand employees globally right now. Um, still not as big as IBM was when I was there, but a year ago, I was turned on to um, Salesforce. Has refers to their employees and their customers as their ohana, the Hawaiian mm-hmm. word for family. So the Hawaiian culture influences the culture of the company a lot. I think just because our CEO obsessed about the whole thing when he created the company and that's really what it is and it's it's really remarkable 
but they have a lot of um, what they refer to as Ohana groups within the organization. So groups of employees that come together and organize around different things. So there's Earth Force. There is Bold Force, which is the one for the, you know, the, the black and brown community. There's Latino Force. There's Asia Pac Force. It runs. There's also Ability Force for folks with disabilities. And I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. I saw, you know, October is Disability Awareness Month. Yep. It was last October I saw something. I'm like, huh, what's this invisible disabilities thing? So I attended a group meeting and I said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll be interested in this. And then months go by and they don't have anything because it's a small group of like a half dozen employees who are actually organizing a lot of the stuff for the invis- invisible disabilities working group, the subgroup of the bigger ability for yeah. the Hunter group there. So they reconvene us all back in like March. And they invited everyone to this meeting and said, hey, you guys all said you were interested. Let's come and see who's there. And, you know, I have my project manager professional designation from a past roles and things like that and spending my time in the marketing consulting world. And I was attending a few of these meetings. I'm like, these people need some help. Like one of those meetings is like they went from like six people to 25 and you can imagine 25 people all deeply caring about the topic at hand, wanting to do all these different projects. I'm like, this is a fucking shit show. So I reached out to the woman who was lead of the group, and she said, you know what? I was just talking to the core team. I'm glad that you reached out. We were just talking about you. So I sat there, and I'm now part of this core team who is helps to manage this Invisible Disabilities Working Group. And we're talking about things we're going to be doing for Invisible Disabilities Awareness Week later in October, but also as part of Disabilities Awareness Month now. And I was never someone who viewed myself as having a disability. Same. Because I was always brought up with the idea that a lot of the disabilities that are there are clearly visible. Yeah. The idea of invisible ones was never something that really resonated to me. Yeah. And when I saw friends over the years say, has anyone applied for disability before with Crohn's or Clytis? I'm like, you can I, really? Yeah, I think you can. And, like, I've always said that I'm oh, pretty sure if I didn't want to work, I wouldn't have to, but I would never yeah. do that. It, it is a it is a process and a half. Yeah. And a lot of people haven't been successful, but it just opened my eyes up to things. Okay, so there. So it's this small group of people who is just awesome. And I think I'm one of two cronies as part of the group. And, you know, we still talk about things like that, too. It's also, it's that... Whenever you find groups of like-minded people around, your guard drops and you can have conversations about anything. Yeah. Whether it's it's the girl there who is highly sensitive to some noises and other things that go on too and the other shit that she deals with to those of us who play for Team Brown and certainly talk about poop all over the place. Yeah. I mean, it's just how it is. So all the time that I've spent in Team Challenge and doing the different things from it's really been a bit of a leadership training, honestly, over time, sort of without realizing that's what it was, but it's kept me involved in other things around things like that. So I've been in, only been involved with team challenge for a decade, but I feel like a large part of me is now the way I am because yeah, of that. You've evolved and, because of them. And I have closer friends that I made in the last decade than I have from even back in high school and wow. things like that. And I was never a big, again, I, I told you, socially awkward. So I was never, <laughs> never really a big social butterfly at all 
and I was always a rule follower and someone who was easy to pick on and things like that. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of bad memories from a little kid. Um, let's just say this. When I was in second grade and seven years old and Benji came out, it was not a good experience. When, when you're seven and people are barking at you with the bus on, on the bus, Aww. because, Hey, you know, at that point in time, you're like, whatever it is, but you know, kids can be cruel. And I try oh. to shield, I try to shield my own kids from that stuff, but you know, I've evolved and I'm, ever so thankful for what the foundation has done. And I sit back and I look at it. And if I count the money that was raised in 2003 and add in the, the, the 10 races or so, it probably eclipses $60,000 over that period at this That's point, fantastic. Which, which I'm incredibly proud of. I mean, That's it's one of those deal. things. Yeah. And so much. So I told you, Tammy's never seen me sick, but getting involved with team challenge and her becoming friends, with a lot of the same people has yeah. opened her eyes as to what it can be. So she actually ran Vegas with me that second year. Aww. We went back and she, those are my won. couple goals. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a great thing to do, but the one thing that I, it obviously gets harder once you have children. Yeah. But it's one of those things where I'm also someone who's very mindful of the importance of individuality when it comes to a couple, too. Yeah. And I have tried to, as much as it's hard to separate Team Challenge from the two of us, um, she still comes to some training sometimes and does whatever it is. She took part in Spin 4, I think it was, two years ago. That was sort of more her pace. The half marathon was not hers. She did the Falmouth Road Race in 18, I think it was. So she's wanted to try and stay involved and do some things, but she's kind of left most of the team challenge stuff to me. Yeah. She's she's stayed connected with the people who she got to know really well in that 2010, 2011 time frame. You know, people who she was running with, and she's got her own funny running stories from taking a wrong turn uh, in, in Newton near Heartbreak Hill and running into a German there. and running into a German shepherd with a friend of hers, and just you know, sort of it was fenced in, but still scared the crap out of her. <laughs> um, you know, so it, but it's just one of those things. So I think if you, I just finding my way to sort of keep it in sort of it's something that I do. It's like my kids understand. You know, she's great about little shirts for the kids when they sit there and. You know, I'm looking at something now, my wall, that is probably a picture from 2013, which has my oldest sitting with a Team Challenge singlet on. That was at a training that one of my friends who I was a mentor of then, um, Nancy Dion, who you probably have met because she's a photographer and does a lot of the things for the chapter. She photographers my family now. She photographs my family now. But it's a photo that she took of Annabelle when she was like two. And it's sitting there. It was on a door sign that's still sitting in my office because it's like, that's the coolest picture. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's definitely different, but I, I think as, as hard as it still is, as conscious as I still am about making the proper decisions, because just because I've been in remission this long, I still live with, with two things that are probably not good. A degree of fear that at some point, I'm not sure that goes away. No, that other shoe is going to drop. And it's been a long time. I feel like there's always a chance and I have to stay diligent yeah. about being healthy with things, not making stupid decisions food wise yeah. and also trying to stay as healthy as I can and maintain a reasonable weight. Um, 
my doctor's not so upset if I'm a little heavier than what the statistics say I should be because she'd rather say, listen, if you flare, I'd rather you lose weight and be at a healthy weight yeah. instead of losing weight and being at an yeah. unhealthy weight. So be a little heavier on the off chance. Just don't be stupid. You know, don't worry about a range. She says, I want you to be mentally comfortable where you are weight wise. Yeah. So if that means that you want to stay within a certain place or have a certain number as the first number, you do you, but don't be stupid. Yeah. Is basically I what think she said. I got to be honest. I feel like you've really mastered that. You have such a, com- I'm going to call it a complex, beautiful journey where you've really <laughs> just like, I mean, come on, you, you know, you're even talking about like being a socially awkward person to, you know, now where you're like running groups and stuff like that, doing amazing podcasts. Like, you know, your, your journey has been so like just, complex and beautiful that and, and you know, that, this that, is, was always where you were going to end up. That's why I say I'm complicated. Yeah. Um, no, I like it. That's because <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like you take the seizures, the lactose, the Crohn's, the thyroid cancer. It's like, it all adds up. And, yeah. you know, I did put a lot of weight on recently and I dropped 45 pounds last year. Um, I got to the point where I had to actually go to a weight management program at Brigham Women's Hospital. I tried all these things, bitched for two years and was like, you know what, this isn't working. But I said, there's no way people are touching me. It's like, get me to the point where I'm back where I need to be. I've got good habits again. I've become re-educated. I understand where things are. Yeah. I know it's going to work. And then my doctor's like, okay, fantastic work. You do you. It's like, look, from where I was before, I was down again to 195 as of pretty much from say last October until, Oh geez, February. <laughs> um, and I think as of last look, a few weeks back, I put on about a dozen pounds during COVID. Talk to my we all? <laughs> yeah. It's not quite the COVID-19. Most people talk about all the weight that they've gained. I am the rare one that lost a few, but I also ran for a hundred days. So yes, you, you, you did. You did. So, I've been doing these these weekly virtual training sessions with my trainer, but it hasn't translated to more than the single day a week. Yeah, I did the virtual marathon market back in June, but haven't been back into routine yet. So my goal before winter is to get back to four to five days a week of exercising you because I'm not going to be. I'm not worried about it. I just need to make sure that come next March, when we're a year past COVID, that that 12 pounds is gone. Yes, I, the, I, I agree. But, but the other thing that I still massively live with, which I have a hard time dealing with, and part of it is just added, I joke, because of the the religion at that point. And it's complicated because of how I feel around all my team challenge teammates is an incredible sense of guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, I joke about the Jewish guilt too, but I, I sit there and I'm like, why am I the one that's so healthy here? Like there are so many people every year within the team as it changes. And some people who you see year after year and like, okay, so why am I healthy and they not? Why am I still healthy and they're not? Because they're doing all the right things too. And their body is giving them double freedom rockets. It's, you so know, it's, like, it's it, you kind know, of I luck just, of the draw. It's I, I mean, not... I, I guess that's what it does come down to, but it's like, but that's, but mentally, that's that's my struggle. Yeah. It's like you struggle with the fear of knowing that anything can trigger anything at any time. And I could 
I could be texting you in a week and I could be like, wow, it's the first time in ages this happened. Probably is not nope, going to. We're not. Yep. We're not no, putting that out but, there. But, but I'm, but I'm keenly aware that yeah. there's always that chance way in the back that anything could happen at any time, no matter how good you are. Mm-hmm. But I also, whenever I'm around people and I'm training, it's like, I'm pushed even more to keep coming back and keep doing more because I can. It's like, I'm healthy enough to continue to do this. Well, you know my shame motto. On, shame on me if I don't do it. Right? You know? Yeah. Well, I you do. know the motto here. It's be scared, <laughs> do it anyway. So. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate. So I feel like I should do it anyway. Because there are people who yeah. may want to be scared and do it anyway, who physically their body won't let yeah. them. So because I can, I have to. Yes. You know, and that's the that's the additional pressure I sort of put on myself sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, that's why when I'm one of the other great things about Salesforce is they're very charitable. So they'll match donations. Oh, that's awesome. So if I make a, if I'm any donation, I make a $50 or more up to $2,500 a year gets matched dollar for dollar. That's awesome. And then if I volunteer 56 hours during that given calendar year, they open an additional $2,500 up for matching donations too. So I can sit there and when, you know, Mark has again, one of his virtual things for September, Tammy signed us both up. It came to over 50 bucks. Said, okay, I'll submit for the match. Yeah. Another like 54 bucks going back. To, I didn't run a lick during the whole thing because it just didn't work. But you know what? But it's just okay. one of those things, but that's <laughs> okay because I can keep doing things like that. So, but I'm also guilting my work colleagues. I'm like, look, if you're going to donate, take advantage of the match. Yeah. The company's giving it to you. Don't be, don't be a cheap ass sales rep who I know closes millions of dollars of deals and <laughs> donate 25 bucks. Donate 50 so you can turn it to 100 like that, please. I um, like it. I've had to go ahead and know entering a season how much I'm comfortable donating myself. Because yeah. I've had, because again, as you donate, as you fundraise year after year, you've got to get creative, like you said. So I've actually went to people and I've said, okay, during this like three day span, I would typically do it at the very end of December because everyone wants to get the donations in before the end of the year for taxes. Yeah. So I said, okay, your donation is worth three bucks. So I said, if you donate in this period, I will match it and my company will match it. So, you know, I said up to whatever it was like the first 250 bucks or whatever it might've been. So one year, I think it was 500. So I literally, within 72 hours ended up with having $1,500 basically committed. You know, it takes three months for the match to come in from work, but I had to be comfortable enough saying, okay, all the donations I can make for a year, I'm going to make in this one three day span. Yeah. And I'm just going to try to make it stretch for as much as it can. So you have to get creative with things. Absolutely. And you know, because people are good. You're going to be disappointed by some people who either, started giving and have stopped or for some reason over years never have. And you still do the right thing and you still support all their causes because you're hoping at some point they're going to reciprocate <laughs> with something to come back. 
I'm a no judgment zone. I can only ask, no. and that's really all you can do. I think it gets to be complicated when it comes to family. Is where oh, it yeah. becomes sticky. So oh, it's of like, course. especially when there's these irrational scoreboards by other people who say, "Oh, well, <laughs> have you done that?" Well, that's yeah. a whole new podcast right there. <laughs> like um, I said, complicated, Jack. Right? <laughs> um, well, Ben, you know my favorite question I like to ask people at the end yeah. of the podcast. And I'm sure because you've listened, you know what I'm going to say. So what would you consider your most fearless act that you've ever done? I think it's probably there's one pre-diagnosis and there's one post-diagnosis, I think, is what it really comes down to. Because I was trying to think of one and I couldn't because <laughs> I, I feel like I have this this sort of point of, you know, this, this almost tipping point in a sense where – Life changed at the moment of the diagnosis. So there were things before that and there were things after. Um, the, the thing before that that's probably the most fearless goes back to that summer in Newport when I had to be as tenacious as I was to get that press coverage to come in there. Yeah. I was, I was calling a reporter who I was a fan of, who I didn't know from anything and being an annoying son of a bitch with about 30 or 35 phone calls over the course of a few weeks. And I just wasn't going to take no for an answer because I knew it was for the better thing of the organization as a whole. And I'm like, if I can pull this off, this will be great for me reputation wise and job wise. This will be awesome. And the fact that I wasn't afraid to call him and be a pain in the ass. And eventually, you know, we've become really good friends over the years. I think that certainly constitutes that there. I mean, look, aside from taking the obvious out with, um, you know, creating life with my kids is pretty fearless. No, no, <laughs> of course. no sense around that. But of course, but, but I think we already touched on it, and it's going back for that that second time in Chicago yeah, from I the was... running perspective. It's like that. That's the whole thing. It's like you say, "Fuck this! I'm going back." Not only am I yeah. going back, I'm going to fucking crush it. Yeah. And you know, I think it's it's amazing how motivation comes in there. I think there are other things that certainly qualify as fearless that could be there. But, it's your own um, opinion. I always it, tell it, people, it like, it's all different. Like, what – I'm always just curious what people think is yeah. their, like, most fearless act. And it can change, you know, at any given time. I, I think fearless has so many meanings, too. It does. That, that oh, it, absolutely. It can, it can really be, be some of those things where, you know, I think the two examples I gave are, are certainly relevant and perfect. But it could also be for me at that same time in – was it 2009 – when I was able to take my job that allowed me to work from anywhere, go to Florida for a week and be there with my grandmother while my grandfather had surgery. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of fear that goes in with that and you having to translate for your 84 year old grandmother, what's going on with your 84 year old grandfather and why he has to have this kind of surgery and what it's going to mean. But I was the only one who had the flexibility to do it. So it's like, sign me up. I'll go, you know, but that to me is a, is a different kind of, fearless in a sense where yeah. it's like, you know, that's like, that's real shit. Yeah. You know, oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean the stuff that I was talking about, it's fearless and it's great, but it, it has more of a, you know, softer landing, so to speak. Yeah. You know, it's something I think more people can sort of relate to. And it's, yeah, it's, a, uh, it's been a ride. Well, you are, you are definitely (laughs) fearless. I so appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your journey. This has been so awesome. Thank you so much. No problem. You guys out there, share his story.
story, scream it from the rooftops, and you know our motto here, be scared, do it anyway. (laughs) 